Well, how do I respond to these assaults? Read on, verse 21. But they were silent and answered him, Not a word, for the king's commandment was, Do not answer him. And then Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, who was over the household, and Shebna, the scribe, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the recorder, came to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him the words of Rabshakeh. So here's how you respond. Number one, gang, hold your tongue and go back to the king. Hold your tongue, go back to the king. Don't argue. Don't get into the speculation. Don't fight back, especially when you recognize that the language is coming from the enemy. Don't fight back. Hold your tongue. Go to the king. Proverbs 9, verse 7 says, He who corrects a scoffer gets dishonor for himself. And he who reproves a wicked man gets insults for himself. Don't waste your time. Jesus put it this way. Don't cast your pearls before swine. That's right. Proverbs 26.4 Do not answer a fool according to his folly or you will also be like him. Boy, you know, I've gotten into a few of those conversations in my day. Mostly as a young man where I felt like I had to defend everything and I'd have someone draw me into some foolish argument and the next thing I'd know I'd be losing my temper and saying stupid stuff and stomping off having not won anything. So don't do it. Hold your tongue. Go back to the king. Listen, when Satan is assaulting you, don't answer back. Why would you get into a conversation with him? Amos 5.13 says, At such a time the prudent person keeps silent, for it is an evil time. And so Hezekiah's word to his men is a wise word. Don't answer him. I see the messenger out there. They sent Rabshakeh again. He's, He's spouting off his mouth. Go hear what he has to say. Do not answer him. You come back to me. And they do. They hold their tongue. They go back to the king. That's what we do. In their case, they went to Hezekiah. In our case, we go run into Jesus. And tell him what you've heard. And tell him what's been said. And get it off your chest talking to the Lord Jesus. But watch what Hezekiah does. Second thing you can do, it's an amazingly simple thing to do when you're dealing with the growing threats of the enemy. Chapter 37, verse 1. When King Hezekiah heard it, he tore his clothes, covered himself with sackcloth, and entered the house of the Lord. So, hold your tongue and go back to the king. Number two, humble yourself and go to church. Humble yourself and go to church. One of the things that finally makes Hezekiah a man after God's own heart, a man of the gold standard of King David, is he is humble, or he becomes humble. After 14 years of hard-fought restoration and revival, you know what happened at the end of the 14 years? Hezekiah was kind of proud of the achievement. But now, he gets humble. And he goes back to the temple. He goes back to church. He doesn't say at this point, but Lord, I'm a righteous dude. Look at my reforms. I brought about revival in the land and you're allowing this? Why? I've tried so hard to be a faithful follower and look what you're doing to me. No, he tears his clothes. He gets humble. He doesn't say, I don't need temple so much. I don't need church. It's all right here. I've achieved a certain level of righteousness. I don't need those filthy Christians to hang out with. I can just hang out with myself. And guys, you know, no Christian is an island except one that would be swept away in a tsunami. No Christian stands alone. But sometimes it takes a little humility to go to temple. 
Have you ever been in a position where you haven't been to church for a while and it's so hard to go back? It, because it's a little embarrassing. They all know I haven't been there. What are they going to say when I show up? And invariably what they say is, hey, it's so good to see you, you know. And you have a great time. But we don't know that. We play these mind games with ourselves. Humility to go back to church. A willingness to say, I am not as strong as I thought I was. I need this place. I need you people. Weird as you may be, I need you. (laughs) I'm kidding. I don't think you're weird. Except that you spend Wednesday evening with me. Now that's that's weird. Sometimes it takes that humility. Now again, I know I'm preaching to the choir, but dear choir, listen. The closer we get to the end, the more we need this. The more we as a family, as a group of Christians, as a fellowship, the more we need to be together. Not just to hear Pastor Rick talking, but to be in the same place together, bearing each other up. That's the context of Hebrews 10.24. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some. And it's still the habit of some. And I don't say that judgmentally. But we fill this barn to nearly 200 twice on Sundays, and we don't fill it once on Wednesdays. That breaks my heart. Not personally, but it tells me something. We're still not getting it. How desperately we need to be together. How much we need each other. Why? Because we are close, gang. Don't forsake this assembly. Why not? He says, encourage one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. So if you have a sense that perhaps we're in the last days, you need to spend more time at church. I need to be here more. (laughs) It's kind of funny. The pastor, I'm here a lot. But we all need, and, and honestly, I've shared before, part of the reason I became a pastor, I kid you not, as a young man, I realized, wow, if, I, if I'm a pastor, i got to be at church. What a great way to make sure that I'm there. <laughs> and it's true, we need each other. As the day is drawing near, here in this fellowship, gang, we not only humble ourselves before the Lord, but we also, number three, something else you do is the enemy is attacking, habitually gather for godly counsel. You make it a habit of being around other Christians. You know, I I love on Wednesday nights when we can't get everybody out the door. You know? Especially... Jimmy and Joseph. They just won't leave. Why is that? They're in council. They're talking together. They're praying together. They're encouraging each other. I, I love that. I'm going to kick you guys out because we have a shepherd's meeting. But, but still. <laughs> that is what it's about, gang. It's not, again, just being here for preaching or, or even for worship or prayer. It's, it's being together in fellowship. Bearing each other up. I'm having a lousy week. Can you pray for me? Yes, let's pray together. And standing together, gathering for godly counsel. Verse 2 of chapter 37. I'll keep rolling here. Then he sent Eliakim, who was over the household, with Shebna the scribe and the elders of the priests, covered with sackcloth, to Isaiah, the prophet, the son of Amaz. And they said to him, Thus says Hezekiah, This is a day of distress and rebuke and rejection. For children have come to birth and there is no strength to deliver. What's he saying? We can't deliver ourselves. I recognize this, Lord. 
For 14 years of hard work, for 14 years of righteous behavior, we cannot deliver ourselves. That's what you realize when you finally accept the grace of Jesus Christ, isn't it? For all my righteous work and all the revival I've tried to bring up in my life, I can't do it. I cannot bring to bear. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh. Notice he says, the Lord your God. He doesn't say the Lord my God. Now, I don't believe that Hezekiah here is putting off God. I believe that Hezekiah is abjectly humble. So humble that he, he doesn't even feel like he can call God his God. So he goes to Isaiah, look, you got it. Some of you have been there. Can you pray for me? I don't even know what to pray. Can you pray for me to the Lord? Can you step in? Can you intercede for me? That's what Hezekiah is saying. Perhaps the Lord your God will hear the words of Rabshakeh, whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to reproach the living God and will rebuke the words which the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, offer a prayer for the remnant that is left. So the servants of King Hezekiah came to Isaiah, and Isaiah said to them, Thus you shall say to your master, Thus says the Lord, Do not be afraid because of the words which you have heard, with which the servants of the king of Assyria have blasphemed me. He says, Don't be afraid. The servants, the word servants there is a great word that Isaiah uses. It's nahar in the Hebrew. Nahar means lads. Lads. Don't be afraid of what the lads of Assyria are saying. (laughs) Put another way, God is calling the Rabshakeh and other messengers juvenile delinquents. (laughs) Don't listen to the juvenile delinquents. Don't be afraid of the brats. Don't be afraid of what the lads have said. And notice this. Here's the thing that's serious... Serious reality here. The tactics of Rabshakeh are not just opinions. They're not just speculations. They're not just dissenting views. Gang, they are blasphemy. Don't miss this. There are times when you are having conversation with someone about the Lord and they are blaspheming your God. Don't stand for it. Doesn't mean that you have to take someone out. Doesn't mean you have to, you know, get angry with them. But don't sit there and let. I, we do it too much. Oh, what kind of God is your God? Blah, blah, blah. And off people go and we sit there feeling like, well, you know, I'm going to save them. So, you know, sometimes we just need to say, look, stop. You are offending my God whether you realize it or not. You're speaking words of blasphemy here. And God points this out. Rabshakeh was not just threatening, was not just spouting off. He was in the midst of blasphemy and speculations and denigrations of the skeptic often cross that line. Behold, he says, I will put a spirit in him so that he will hear a rumor and return to his own land. And I will make him fall by the sword in his own land. Well, then Rabshakeh returned and found the king of Assyria fighting against Libna, for he had heard that the king had left Lachish. So he comes down and he finds, okay, king's gone, Sennacherib, all of a sudden he's been drawn off somewhere else. Exactly what the Lord said he was going to do. You're going to hear a rumor and you're going to feel like you need to go fight over here. And off Sennacherib goes. When he heard them say concerning Turkana, king of Cush, he has come out to fight against you. When he heard it, he sent messengers to Hezekiah saying, Thus you shall say to Hezekiah, king of Judah, Do not let your God in whom you trust deceive you. Blasphemy, gang. Saying, Jerusalem will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Behold, you have heard that the kings of Assyria have done to all the lands. You've heard what we've done to all the lands. Destroying them completely. So will you be spared? 
Did the gods of those nations which my fathers have destroyed deliver them, even Gozan and Haran and Rezeph and the sons of Eden who are in Telassar? Just different gods. Where is the king of Hamat, the king of Arpad, the king of the city of the Sepharvaim and of Hena and Eva? Where are these guys? The enemy is just, he's still repeating the same stuff. Throwing it back out again, this time in a written letter, written form, sends it out, same old blasphemous blah, blah, blah. But the effect, gang, the effect is lessening as Hezekiah's faith is growing. Watch this, verse 14. Then Hezekiah took the letter from the hand of the messengers and read it. And he went up to the house of the Lord and spread it out before the Lord. Immediate difference in Hezekiah. Before, he didn't even feel like he could pray. He sent word to Hezekiah, pray for us. I need you to stand in the gap for me. He's humble. He's humiliated. But now, now he's heard the word back from Isaiah. Now faith is beginning to spur in his heart. And he doesn't go to Isaiah the prophet. He And here's the fourth thing you can do when under attack. You hand it over directly to God. There comes a point, brothers and sisters, hear me on this, there comes a point where we need to stop going to each other and we need to go directly to Jesus Christ. We need to stop looking for the answers we want to hear from other believers and we need to go to the Father. Well, how does that? How do I do that? You go to the Father. Well, what do I tell Him? What you're telling me. Take it to the Father. Oh, what peace we often forfeit. Oh, what needless pain we bear. All because we do not carry everything to God in prayer. And Hezekiah does this. Verse 15, Hezekiah prayed to the Lord. He said, oh, I love this prayer. O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel who is enthroned above the cherubim, You are the God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Great statement of faith. You're the one. Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. And listen to all the words of Sennacherib, who sent them to reproach the living God. Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have devastated all the countries in their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were not gods, but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. So they have destroyed them. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from His hand that all the nations, all the kingdoms of the earth may know that You alone, Lord, are God. And that's the right perspective. It is not about saving your life, Hezekiah, or even your kingdom. It's that all the world may know that He is God. Save us for your name. And save us for your sake, O Lord. Hezekiah goes direct to God the Father. Ephesians 6.18 says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. The sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and prayer, those are your weapons of warfare. That's how you go head to head in the spiritual battle. Pray at all times, he says. Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer. Keeping alert in it with thanksgiving. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 Pray without ceasing. Why is there so much emphasis on prayer in the Word of God? You know why? Very simply, because prayer expands faith. You've seen the movie The Shadowlands with C.S. Lewis. About C.S. Lewis. And there's a line in it, my favorite line in the whole thing where the guy, uh, Anthony Hopkins, playing C.S. Lewis, says, I don't pray to change God. I pray to change me. 
Because prayer expands faith. The more I pray, the bigger my faith gets. The less I pray, the more my faith over succumbs to fear and doubt and worry. Pray because it expands your faith. What do you think is going on in Isaiah's heart or Hezekiah's heart, verse 16, when he says, O Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, who is enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. What's going on here? It's faith. His heart's getting big. In fact, I think his heart grew three sizes that day. As his faith is just expanding outward, he is now recentered on God. For God alone. And I think the Lord loves it. Verse 21. Then Isaiah the son of Ahmad sent word to Hezekiah saying, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, because you have prayed to me about Sennacherib, king of Assyria, this is the word that the Lord has spoken against them. Now listen, before we read on, two things to catch here. Number one, Hezekiah prayed directly to God and God answered him through Isaiah. What's the deal with that? It's confirmation. We want to hear from the Lord. All of us do. I know this. And we want to hear Him speak and hear Him give answer to our prayers. You know what? When He gives answer through someone else to the very prayer that you're praying, doesn't that strengthen your faith? Because when He answers me directly, if I'm actually hearing from the Lord, you know what my first thought is? Is that really you? Or am I just kind of making up things in my head? (laughs) Lord, how can I be absolutely sure it's you? That's the value of of a confirming word from a brother or sister. If you've been praying about something and asking, often I will do this, Lord, would you give me confirmation through Les or or through Jake? I think that, or through our shepherds or, or through my friends. There's something, Lord, I think this is what we're supposed to do, but before I do it, can you confirm this? And I love walking into a situation, and this has happened many times with Les and I, where Les will sit down in my office and we'll start talking, and all of a sudden he'll start saying things, and I'll go, Okay, that's what I was praying for. That's it. That's the answer. And I know that I know that God has answered my prayer because He's gone around and brought Les to answer something Les didn't even know was going on. And it's a great way to know God is answering you. Ask for confirmation through other believers. Lord, would you just bring bring Joe to me and have him say something that he can't possibly know. Which I know, Karen, is easy. There's a lot of things that Joe just doesn't know. So bring him, you know? And bring the word. But also, before we read on, don't miss this. After 14 years of revival and reform, here is the reason that God answers Hezekiah. He prayed. He just went to the Lord. For all of your hard work and for all the reforms of your life, that's what matters most is the relationship with God. We can do all these right things, but if we're not even talking to Him, return to me. You know? You've forgotten your first love, He said to Ephesus. Come talk to me. You're doing all the right stuff, but you're not talking to me. Hezekiah finally does. Now, I don't know. Was he praying over those 14 years? I think at times he was, but he was awfully full of himself and his self-righteousness. So here he goes. He prays and the Lord says, All right, this is what I've been waiting for to rescue you and the people of Judah. Verse 22. This is the word that the Lord has spoken against king of Assyria, Sennacherib. She has despised you and mocked you, the virgin daughter of Zion. The virgin daughter? Wow. These are the same people who are prostituting themselves with pagan idols under Ahaz. 
And God looks at Judah and calls them His virgin daughters. See, that's what grace does. Again, grace will forget everything you've done against the Lord. Everything that you've done that has defiled your life, God's grace washes it away and when He looks at you, He sees you as a virgin son, a virgin daughter. I think that's beautiful. She has shaken her head behind you, the daughter of Jerusalem, whom you have reproached and blasphemed, and against whom have you raised your voice and haughtily lifted up your eyes against the Holy One of Israel. And that's the truth. You are never the person truly being mocked if it's for your faith. It's not the Christian who's mocked. It is not the individual believer who is being reproached by the enemy or the world. It's the Holy One of Israel. It's not you. It's because of who you believe in. He is the one being maligned, not you. John 15, 18, Jesus said, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, because of this, the world hates you. That's a badge of honor. To be hated by the world because you love Jesus. Badge of honor, my friends. Jesus said in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad. For your reward in heaven is great. In the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The persecution, the mockery, it's against the Holy One of Israel. Verse 24, Through your servants you have reproached the Lord. And you have said, with my many chariots, I came up to the heights of the mountains, to the remotest parts of Lebanon, and I cut down all its tall cedars and its choice cypresses, and I will go to its highest peak, its thickest forest. I dug wells and drank waters, and with the sole of my feet I dried up all the rivers of Egypt. Have you not heard, the Lord says through Isaiah, long ago I did it. From ancient times I planned it. And now I have brought it to pass that you should turn fortified cities into ruinous heaps. You don't understand, Assyria. You are my tool of judgment. You are my rod of discipline. This is not by your greatness that you're conquering all of this. You're doing what I determined would happen, God says. Therefore the inhabitants were short of strength and were dismayed and put to shame. They were as the vegetation of the field. And as the green herb, as grass on the housetops, is scorched before it's grown up. What's he saying? He's saying, look, I made it possible for you to conquer these cities. These people were like vegetables. You hear about the two carrots who are walking along the road? They're walking along the road and one of them gets hit by a car. Tragic. So they put him in the little ambulance and take him off to the hospital. His friend rides along with him and his friend's waiting and waiting in the, in the waiting room there. Finally the doctor comes out. He says, Doctor, will my, will my friend the carrot, will he be okay? He'll be fine, but he's going to be a vegetable the rest of his life. <laughs> Thank you. That's good. <laughs> because of your raging against me, verse 29, because of your arrogance... Actually, go back to verse 28. We missed that. But I know you're sitting down and you're going out and you're coming in and you're raging against you. Yes, I heard you. Because of your raging against me, because of your arrogance that has come up to my ears, therefore I will put my hook in your nose and my bridle in your lips and I will turn you back by the way you came. Bible students, you know, that was the method of torture of the Assyrians. And God says, I'm turning it around. What you have been doing, guess what? It's coming right back around 
on you. Now it's your turn. But to Hezekiah and to Judah, he says in verse 30, Then this shall be the sign for you. You will eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year, what springs from the same. And in the third year, sow, reap, plant vineyards, and eat their fruit. This is a marvelous two-pronged prophecy. It's immediate. It's a present promise of deliverance. God is saying, Judah, you're not going to go into Assyrian captivity. This year you're going to eat what grows of the ground. You're not even going to have to till it. It's going to grow, you'll eat. Next year, same thing's going to happen. In the third year, you're going to be back to farming and planting. The threat's over. Assyria will not take you down. But this present promise of deliverance is, I believe, also a future promise of restoration. Three days. Three days. This will be the sign for you. You'll eat this year what grows of itself. In the second year what springs from the same. In the third year sow, reap, plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Three days. Three days. For two days, might that be 2,000 years? The Jewish people have been subsisting on what grows of itself. For the past 2,000 years, since the fall of Jerusalem, since the mess, since the dispersion, the diaspora of the Jewish people, they have basically eaten what has come. They have been dispersed, but they've been cared for. They have remained somehow, remarkably. They have existed, eating what grows of itself. And I know they plant and they grow in Israel today, but they're not at peace. Not even close. Did you, did you hear about the letter that they sent? There's a flytilla that's coming into Israel. You've heard about the flotillas trying to bring boats in, and they've barred that. Well, there's a, a group protesting the regime in Israel, protesting the apartheid regime who, who planned this flytilla, you know, fly airplanes in and land in Israel. Well, the Israeli government sent out a letter of welcome, and it's hysterical. If you just go on a Google letter of welcome for the flytilla, uh, you can find it. But this letter basically says, thank you so much for choosing to fly into Israel with your concerns and your complaints. We recognize that you could have chosen Syria to fly in, the human rights violations, or perhaps, and they list all these horrible things that are happening in the world. You could have chose to go there, but you came to Israel, a place where you have the freedom to say what you want to say. A place where, you know, and they just, it's hilarious. It's absolutely hilarious. And they ended, oh, and have a nice flight. So I, I love that. <laughs> So they're not at peace. Two days. Two days. But on the third day, might not the third day be the Millennial Kingdom? The third thousand year period. And we know this about the Kingdom. Micah chapter 4 verse 4 tells us in the Kingdom, each of them will sit under his vine and under his fig tree. Not thanks to Sennacherib, but thanks to the Lord. With no one to make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. Three days. Two days you'll subsist. On the third day, you're going to be farming again in peace. Now, that's not the only verse that indicates this kind of an idea. It's not the only prophecy where three days speaks of 3,000 years. 2,000 years of dispersion, 1,000 years of peace and prosperity. Listen to this prophecy. Hosea chapter 6, verse 2. Jewish people speaking. He will revive us after two days. He will raise us up on the third day that we may live before Him. He will revive us. And I'm waiting to see. 
Because this, gang, this is my belief. I think that the two days is 2,000 years and we're right on the precipice of the third day where Israel is raised up, resurrected, if you will. Note that the third day is always, it's consistent in Scripture, resurrection, life, glory on the third day. You know, the third day will be raised up, and I believe it's also the context of God's response to Hezekiah. Look at verse 31. He says, Then the surviving remnant of the house of Judah will again take root downward and bear fruit upward. For out of Jerusalem will go forth a remnant, and out of Mount Zion survivors, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. That's the same thing Isaiah said about the kingdom and the Prince of Peace coming. The zeal of the Lord of hosts is going to make this happen, this great kingdom where the remnant flows out of Zion once again. And so we're talking future promise, future prophecy, as well as an immediate promise. Therefore, verse 33, Thus says the Lord concerning the king of Assyria, He will not come to this city or shoot an arrow here or there, and he will not come before it with a shield or throw up a siege ramp against it. By the way he came, by the same way he will return, and he will not come to this city, declares the Lord. And by the way, Sennacherib never did. He never did. Nor was a single arrow fired by an Assyrian over the wall of the city. Not one. I will defend this city to save it for my own sake and for my servant David's sake. And gang, you know the rest of the story. The angel of the Lord went out and struck 185,000 in the camp of the Assyrians. And when men arose early in the morning, behold, all of these were dead. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, departed and returned home and lived at Nineveh. It came about as he was worshipping in the house of Nisroch, his god, that Adrimelech and Sharetzer, his sons, killed him with the sword, and they escaped into the land of Ararat, and as Haradon, his son, became king in his place. Exactly as God said. Well, that must have been written by like 10th Isaiah, because it couldn't possibly have been prophetic. <laughs> Okay, at this point, the menace of Sennacherib of Assyria is over. They will never threaten Judah again, but that same year, I know we're in chapter 38 and we got to get through 39, right? Okay, buckle up. Here we go. That same year, Hezekiah was faced with another mortal threat, and that is sickness to the point of death. Verse 1, chapter 38, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill. And Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amoz, came to him and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Set your house in order, for you shall die and not live. I think, my perspective, I think this was before the Assyrian threat. I think this happened that same year, but it was before even the threat of Assyria, and that was the threat of the death of Isaiah, or Hezekiah. Why do you think that? 2 Chronicles 32.24 says, In those days Hezekiah became mortally ill, and he prayed to the Lord, and the Lord spoke to him and gave him a sign. But Hezekiah gave no return for the benefit he received, because his heart was proud. Therefore wrath came on him and on Judah and on Jerusalem. What wrath? Assyria. However, Hezekiah humbled the pride of his heart, both he and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the wrath of the Lord did not come on them in the days of Hezekiah. We see Hezekiah humbling himself in this whole onslaught of Assyria in an amazing way. And so I think that may be, not saying for sure, but I think that may be the order of things that in the beginning of his 39th year, because it was at this same time, the beginning of his 39th year, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah and says, it's over. 
set things in order, you're about to die. No! And he starts to freak out. Well, the rest of chapter 38 is him freaking out. How would you react? If someone came, the doctor called and said, it's six months. Or three months. Or you have a year to live, but I have some bad news. I should have told you that nine months ago. You know, (laughs) how do you react with the possibility of your mortality coming to bear? (laughs) Good to hear. Would you set your house in order and say, I'm good to go? Or would you tweet? Like Hezekiah. Would you get on Twitter? This is what Hezekiah does. One of the first biblical signs of someone actually using Twitter. Watch this, verse 2. Then Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord and said, Remember now, O Lord, I beseech you, how I have walked before you in truth with a whole heart and have done what is good in your sight. See, now he's pronouncing his self-righteousness. Not his incredible need for the Lord. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. And then the word of the Lord came to him saying, Go say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father David, I have heard your prayer. I have seen your tears. Behold, I will add 15 years to your life. I will deliver you and this city from the hand of the king of Assyria, and I will defend this city. This shall be the sign to you from the Lord that the Lord will do this thing that He has spoken. Behold, I will cause the shadow on the stairway which has gone down with the sun on the stairway of Ahaz to go back ten steps. The stairway of Ahaz, they think, was either a sundial or perhaps a column that they actually used to count time or to measure the time of day. Okay? I will cause it to go back ten steps. So the sun's shadow went back ten steps on the stairway on which it had gone. Well, that's impossible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Okay, we'll just leave it right there. So he, this is what happens. The parallel story is in 2 Kings chapter 20. But once again, Hezekiah, he prays, he's heard, he's answered by the Lord. But gang, was it the right prayer? Hold that thought. Listen to his extended tweet on the subject. These are the words now of Hezekiah. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after his illness and recovery. I said in the middle of my life, I am, a, I am to enter the gates of Sheol. I am to be deprived of the rest of my years. I said, I will not see the Lord, the Lord in the land of the living. I will look on man no more among the inhabitants of the world. Now, is he right? No. He's not right. He's completely overlooking the possibility of resurrection. But this is where he's at in his turmoil. Like a shepherd's tent, my dwelling is pulled up and removed from me. As a weaver, I rolled up my life. He cuts me off from the loom. From day until night, you make an end of me. I compose my soul until morning. Like a lion, so he breaks all my bones. From day until night, you make an end of me. Like a swallow, like a crane, so I twitter. And there it is. I moan like a dove. My eyes look wistfully to the heights. Oh Lord, I am oppressed. Be my security. What shall I say? For He has spoken to me and He Himself has done it. I will wander about all my years because of the bitterness of my soul. Oh Lord, by these things men live. And in all these things is the life of my spirit. Oh, restore me to health and let me live. Lo, for my own welfare I had great bitterness. It is you who has kept my soul from the pit of nothingness. 
That word kept is also translated loved. And I like that. You have loved my soul from the pit of nothingness. You have cast all my sins behind your back. For Sheol cannot thank you. Death cannot praise you. Those who go down to the pit cannot hope for your faithfulness. It is the living who give thanks to you as I do today. A father tells his sons about your faithfulness. The Lord will surely save me. So I will play my songs on stringed instruments all the days of our life at the house of the Lord. And by the way, Hezekiah did. After God heals him and gives him this extended 15 years, Hezekiah followed through on his promise in verse 20. 2 Chronicles 29.25 says he stationed the Levites in the house of the Lord with cymbals, with harps, with lyres, according to the, demand, the command of David and of Gad the king's seer and of Natan the prophet, for the command was from the Lord through his prophets. Moreover, verse 30, King Hezekiah and the officials ordered the Levites to sing praises to the Lord with the words of David and Asaph the seer. And so they sang praises with joy and bowed down and worshipped. Hezekiah says, if you let me live, I will make sure worship happens. God gives him 15 years and worship happened. Verse 21. See how quickly we move here? Now Isaiah had said, let them take a cake of figs and apply it to the boil that he may recover. You might want to try that. Buy yourself a package of fig newtons. If you have some boiling. Anyway. Verse 22, then Hezekiah had said, What is the sign that I shall go up to the house of the Lord? Now Isaiah doesn't even answer the question because he already did. Okay, in the first part, back where he said, Behold, I will cause the shadow to descend on the stairway. So he doesn't leave us hanging. He's already answered the question. But back to the question that I asked you. Was this, this, this tweet, this statement, this crying out this prayer of Hezekiah was it the best prayer was it the right prayer Spencer has an opinion (laughs) listen gang another king facing his own immediate death prayed a completely different prayer in fact he prayed the right prayer he said my father if it is possible let this cup pass from me yet not as I will but as you will See the difference there. Let me just encourage you all when it comes to prayers for healing. And as I said Sunday, we should be praying for healing. Where the King is present, we should expect kingdom healing to take place. So we should be praying for healing for one another in our own lives. But when you pray for healing, pray the will of the Father. Lord, would you please heal me? Yet not as I will, but as you will. Sometimes our sickness, sometimes our illness, sometimes our disease is to the glory of God. Sometimes it's for a purpose we can't even see. Sometimes He uses it to pull us out of our flesh and into a place of the Spirit. So pray the will of God because it's always the better prayer. Hezekiah's prayer, it's not the wrong prayer. You're allowed to pray and ask and cry out to the Lord for healing. Absolutely. But the better prayer is pray the will of the Father. There are things we can't see, right? There are future events we do not know, but He knows. And so Paul writes in Romans 8.26, in the same way the Spirit also helps our weakness, we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. He who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. 
That's what I want. God, I want Your will in my life. And if that's disease and and sickness, for some purpose I can't see, bring it. If that's healing, which is my desire, then bring that, Lord. Well, Hezekiah had a humbling 39th year. Talk about an epic midlife crisis. But in this year, he grew in the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. Two things happened in these additional 15 years of Hezekiah's life that would not have happened if he had just accepted the will of God and gone on to be at home. Two things happened. Number one, Hezekiah fathered an evil son, King Manasseh. Manasseh would follow Hezekiah. Manasseh would be conceived and born in these last 15 years. And when Manasseh took the throne, he brought 55 years of pure evil to Judah. In Manasseh's 55 years, he would single-handedly undo every single reform of his father, Hezekiah. He would take Judah back to the days of Ahaz and worse. And this is because he was born in these last 15 years. By the way, Jewish tradition holds that it would be Manasseh, the son of Hezekiah, who would make sure that Isaiah was arrested, shoved into a hollow log, and sawn in half. Manasseh did that. Son of Isaiah's close friend, King Hezekiah. Hebrews 11.37 alludes to this of the sawing in half. But there was another failure of Hezekiah's that is listed in these last 15 years with the final eight verses of chapter 39. Listen to this. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. Hezekiah was pleased and showed them all his treasure house, the silver and the gold and the spices and the precious oil and his whole armory and all that was found in his treasures. There was nothing in his house nor in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. And then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to them, said to him, what did these men say? And from where have they come to you? And Hezekiah said, they have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. See, Hezekiah is impressed. He said, what have they seen in your house? And so Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing among my treasuries that I have not shown them. And then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that your fathers have laid up in store to this day will be carried to Babylon. Nothing will be left, says the Lord. And some of your sons who will issue from you, whom you will beget, they will be taken away. They will become officials in the palace of the king of Babylon. And Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he thought there will be peace and truth in my days. Now this is both humble acceptance. Hezekiah is saying, Okay, all right, I accept God's word from you. Humble acceptance, but also a little bit of relief that it's not going to happen to him. <laughs> Hezekiah fathered an evil son, and Hezekiah foolishly showed off before the emissaries of Babylon, and you know who takes out Judah. Babylon. Had Hezekiah accepted the will of God, had prayed the will of the Father, had gone on to be with the Lord, had passed away, Manasseh would not have been born. And Babylon would not have seen all of these things that would entice them and draw their attention to this tiny little country called Judah. Chapter 39 
sets up the prophetic writings to follow. From this point forward, as we get into chapter 40 and on, as we continue upward toward the kingdom, Assyria is no longer an issue, but there is an issue. And the issue is going to be Babylon. And we will deal with this as we go forward. Just be careful what you pray for. The right prayer is always the will of God. Amen. Amen. Father, thank You for Your Word tonight. Thank You, Father, for perseverance, Lord, uh, among the saints. And thank You, Lord, that You have uh, brought Your Word to us. I pray that we will be sensitive to it, to the wiles of the enemy, but also to the glory of our Father. We love You, Lord. And we praise You in Jesus' name. Amen.